The joy of the saints is always evident when we gather in your name. A joy, Father, from a shared understanding of our future in you. The joy, Father, that comes from knowing that we are freed from the work of saving ourselves, the fruitless efforts that we may have engaged in prior to the knowledge of grace in the face of Christ. And now, Father, the the pure joy of knowing we are free from that by your work. The joy, Father, of knowing that we are united in a love that is not our own, but comes from the Father. A joy, Father, to know that we may serve the Creator, the King of the universe, the Maker of all things. And do so, Father, in a gifting that is not of our own. The joy the world cannot know apart from faith, and yet we have been given it by no merits of our own. Thank you, Father, so much for that joy and that privilege. And thank you, Father, for your word, for the mysteries it holds, for the secrets it reveals in our hearts, for the conviction it brings upon us to cause us to move toward you. And thank you, Father, for the wisdom it gives us so that we may face the trials and tests that you put in our way so that we may grow and strengthen in our faith. We thank you, Lord, for all of these blessings. May today's study, Father, continue in that effort to mold us into the face of Christ, into the knowledge and the grace and the wisdom that is found in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 13, this is the story, continuing story of Abram. Remember, we call him the man of faith, but in many regards, he's really more a study of obedience, a man who had to learn how to walk in faith. When I think of obedience, I think of a story of a father who brought home a new stuffed animal for his infant son one day. He had received this gift from a co-worker who wanted to bless the family with this new child. But the father had a concern because he had three other children, also young, and he was concerned that when he gave the baby this present, the other three would be a bit jealous. And he had nothing for them, as it turned out on that day. But he had a bright idea. He thought he could teach a lesson about obedience in the way he would bring this gift home and give it to his infant. He figured out a way in which he could have the other children actually decide for themselves that the infant was the right one to receive the gift. And so as he holds his infant son in his arms and he calls his other children around him, he produces this little stuffed animal toy. And of course, their eyes all light up, six little hands raised to the sky, all saying, me, 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 I want it, I want it. And then the father begins to ask them, he says, who here is the most obedient? So the other three children, being of toddler age, were frequently guilty of causing their mother no end of grief, as young kids will do from time to time. And so the father's assumption was they would all have no trouble at all identifying their infant brother as really the only one here who could honestly be said to be fully obedient. But instead, the three children just stand there looking at him in silence as he asks the question. None of them are obviously wishing to lose a chance at the toy, taking their Fifth Amendment rights, I guess. So the father decides he has to be more specific if he's going to get to where he wants to go with this question. So he asks them, who never talks back to mother? Certainly the children are going to recognize that this infant who's never said a word to date is the only one who would qualify if that were the test. But to his dismay, the kids just stood there, absolutely silent, stone-faced, unwilling to give their father what he wanted because each was still holding out some hope they might get this toy. Finally, the father, a bit exasperated, wanting to put an end to the game, he says, who here does everything mother says, never talks back, and can't do anything for himself? 
And in unison, the three small voices said, all right, Dad, you get the toy. And I think good humor comes out of a truth, you know, out of, out of something we can all identify with. <laughs> well, obedience sometimes is harder learned than described, and, and certainly Abram is a good example of that. Obedience was the call God placed on his life as he walked in faith. But it's really the call he places on every believer. There's nothing unique about the call that Abram received. When we remember, it was a call to walk in obedience to the faith that he received. That's every Christian's call. We've been watching this man, Abram, walk with the Lord, at least in these early stages, and do so imperfectly. And I think one of the reasons why Abram is such a profitable, such a fascinating study in Scripture is because you and I can identify with this man's walk really easily if we're transparent enough to see ourselves in the story. This man is a man who was called out of obscurity into faith. He was sent in a new direction. He was challenged along the way. And ultimately, he was made to grow in obedience and in holiness. And for the most part, I could take that same sentence and put it on uh, every one of our gravestones as Christians. That's the story of how Abram becomes Abraham, so to speak. And the key, and this is something I'll repeat at more than one occasion in this study, the key to understanding this story is to recognize that God marries together his own faithfulness to his promises with Abram's call to obedience. He takes his own faithfulness, which is not dependent on Abraham, but marries it to an expectation that Abram would be obedient. And with disobedience comes consequences, and with obedience comes blessing. And yet, none of those things do any violence to the promise God made to Abram, which was not dependent on him. God shows his children kindness by blessing us in many ways as a result of his love and as a result of his promises. And he is faithful to do so for us, even when we remain faithless, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13. But God also withholds his blessings to some degree. And I know this is a challenge for some because the world around us teaches a different story, a non-biblical story about blessings. But the truth of Scripture is God will to some degree withhold blessing to his children as a way of demonstrating the importance of obedience and the consequences of sin. In fact, God himself in Matthew 5.48 calls himself the perfect father, the perfect father. And therefore, as a perfect father, he will and must at times withhold the full measure of his blessing as a matter of discipline. And so by that discipline, he will reprove us, he will cause us to grow in our walk of holiness so that we might confess our sins, so that we might choose to please him. That's what good fathers do, or should do. And so this father, our father, is doing very much the same thing to Abram. Hebrews says it this way as we move into the chapter we're about to study. Hebrews in 12.7 says... It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, 
Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what we're studying here in Abram. We're studying about a man who's called to faith, walked with God imperfectly, receives his blessings because God made promises, but also receives at times discipline and God's chastisement so that he may grow in holiness. So if you want to study how God works in your life, just hold the scriptures up when it comes to Abram and look at it as a mirror. And even if the context is different, the places are different, the names are different, they've been changed to protect the innocent, so to speak. In your life, if all of that isn't exactly the same as Abram, it makes no difference. The basic principles are the same, and the way God works is the same. Last week, we finished chapter 12 with Abram leaving Egypt with a measure of God's blessing, even though Abram went in there in disobedience. Abram was not the obedient man God called him to be, and yet God was still true to his promises to Abram, and he blessed him despite his mistakes. So now the question as we go into chapter 13 is, I wonder how much God will be prepared to bless Abram when he returns to the land, when he is fully obedient. Let's find out. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. We'll start with just verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now, why am I pausing there, given that that's saying so little to begin the chapter? Well, there is an important element in that first verse. Chapter 13 picks right up where chapter 12 left off. Abram, his family, leaving Egypt, returning to Canaan after they've been kicked out by the Pharaoh. Moses here describes Abram's route back in, starting into the Negev, and then he'll move on from there. And he describes Abram's traveling party. But now, for the first time in a while, we hear mentioned Lot. And that's what's significant about this verse. Apparently, Lot has never left Abram's side. You may have noticed back in the story we just studied in chapter 12 in Egypt, there was no mention of Lot at all in that part of the story. But now it becomes clear that Lot has been with Abram and with Sarai the whole time. And Moses mentions him here again to open up chapter 13 because he wants to remind us that even as Abram obeys the Lord now and moves back north into the land, into the promised land of Canaan, there is yet still one step of obedience Abram must take. There is still yet another problem with Abram. Back in chapter 12, at the beginning, God spoke to Abram and instructed him concerning the promised land and concerning Abram's need to go somewhere that God would show him. And in those instructions, here's what Abram was told. Do you remember? Leave your Father's house, leave your country, and most applicably here, leave your relatives. Something we can certainly all identify with at certain times, I'm sure. Leave your relatives. Abram was called by God to set aside, to separate from his past world, his past associations, his past dependencies, even his past identity. God wants him to make a clean break from who he was to who he will be. And everything Abram had, everything he knew, Everything he was, was supposed to come to an end. And in the place of those things, God would give Abram something new and better. A new country, a new family, a new inheritance, a new name, a new father's house. And that call to separate hasn't yet been obeyed. Not fully. A little bit of disobedience is 100% of disobedience. You're either in obedience or you're not. And by the way, this call to leave behind his family did not include leaving behind his wife, since she was literally one flesh with Abram. He could no more leave behind Sarai than he could leave behind his right arm. But apart from her, 
he was called to leave behind his relatives. Yet here in chapter 13, what do we see? The very beginning, Moses says he leaves Egypt, he goes back into Canaan through the Negev, and Lot was with him. Now we asked the question back in chapter 12, if you remember, was Abram right to include Lot? And I told you we had to wait to find our answer. Well, here's where we find it in chapter 13. Look at verses 2 through 4 then. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So Abram leaves Egypt a rich man. Now we don't know how much wealth Abram had when he went into Canaan from Haran. We know he came with something. And this now shows us that he leaves Egypt a very wealthy man. That's the emphasis in the Hebrew here. Very rich, very wealthy. Perhaps one of the wealthiest men in the entire region now. And this is, by the way, the very first mention of wealth in the Bible. Interestingly, his wealth has changed from merely being cattle and servants, which is what we heard he had when he left Haran. Now it includes commodities, precious commodities. What that tells us is he's now receiving wealth from the people around him in keeping with God's promise that he would be blessed and that those who bless him, God would bless and that there would be this this reinforcing effect. And that is clearly now taken hold in this man's life. But wealth brings challenges, burdens of its own. And those burdens are going to become evident here now. The next thing we're told here is Abram ventures away from the Negev, away from the border, away from Egypt, back to the heart of the land. So now let's ask some questions. Why does he go back into the land? Why is he even in Canaan at all? Remember why he left last week in chapter 12? Because of a famine. That was a bad mistake on his part. It showed a lack of trust in God. It showed that he trusted more in the world and what it offered than he did in what God offered. But have you noticed Moses has not changed that yet? Moses has not told us that the famine is over. More importantly, Moses told us last week in chapter 12 that it was because Pharaoh discovered Abram's deception and told him to get out of his land. That's the reason now why Abram has moved back into the land. So he's not returning because the famine's over. He's returning because he has to. So Abram left because of a famine, but he's going back despite the fact that the famine is probably still in effect. His step of obedience, therefore, to return under pressure from Pharaoh means that where before he was unwilling to live by faith, now he has no choice. He has to live by faith. He's been forced back into the famine. Isn't it interesting how God can use the world to pressure us and put us where he wants us anyway? He must have reasoned as he was being put back into the land that if God was able to make him rich in a foreign country, well, then think how much easier it will be for God to support him and take care of his needs when he's in God's country, the place he's been put. And his behavior suggests the very same thing. Look what he does. He goes as far as Bethel, Moses says. As far as. That's a way of saying in the Hebrew, he made it his point to go that far when he wouldn't necessarily have needed to under the circumstances. And if you look on a map, Bethel is roughly the geographical center of the land that God has given to Abram at this point, at the land of Canaan specifically. It's as if Abram is saying, I want to go to the heart, the center of this land, to show you my commitment, my willingness to trust in you and to be where you placed me. The place where he started, in fact. 
Abram has returned physically into the land. But by his actions, we see that he's also returned spiritually to God, to walking in obedience. Look at verse 4. Abram seeks out the altar that he set up previously. That's not easy to do, folks. I think if I dropped any one of us into a field, we'd have a hard time getting back to our car. This guy walks hundreds of miles up through a desert wilderness to find a little altar in the middle of basically nowhere that he built at a previous time. That's an effort. He's seeking something out. Something that means something to him. An altar that he built. And when he reaches that place and finds that altar, he calls upon the name of the Lord. Folks, that's what obedience looks like. In real world terms, under his circumstances, that's what obedience looks like. He didn't have the pastor to go back to, or the confessional, or the church, or the home group, or the accountability partner. You know, the things we typically see today as that place we go when we want to demonstrate repentance, demonstrate obedience. Now, I know we don't need those physical things. We all should know that. But the reality is we often like that as a point of reference because we want to remember where we go when we have that heartfelt desire to show God repentance. We need those places sometimes. And God is gracious to give us those opportunities. What did Abram have in this strange land? No home, no city that he's ever really spent any time in, no friends, nobody he knows. But you know what he did have? He had a place that he set out at an earlier point to reach God, to talk to God, to thank and worship God. And he remembered that place. And for him, it was the only place he had in the land. And he went there, and he found it, and he called upon the Lord. It meant he had the humility to return to the one who called him in the first place, calling upon his name, even though he was coming as a man who had strayed, a man who had sinned. I like to say that obedience is not perfection, it's persistence. It's not about always doing the right thing, it's about coming back. It's about repenting and about returning and saying, I don't care if I've screwed up a thousand times, I'm back. And God Protect me from the thousandth and first time, please. Do you imagine what was to wait on this man's heart? As he walked that walk back to Bethel, he must have been thinking the whole time, why did I ever leave? Why did I ever not trust? He should just give up on me. Obviously, I'm not worthy of his call. And yet around him was wealth upon wealth upon wealth, which he knew had been given to him by God's hand. How else could he have come, come into it under the circumstances? The Pharaoh should have killed him. Instead, the Pharaoh sent him away with wealth. In the wheels of his head, this man must have been saying to himself, why do I have these things? I don't deserve them. Why is God being so gracious to me? Why is he letting me see these these blessings even as he watches me disobey in the land of Egypt? We have a word for that, don't we? It's called grace. The full understanding of God's grace brings us to our knees at an altar, so to speak. That's what... Paul means when he says it is the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. So now he's returned to the altar at Bethel, renewing his walk. And yet, Abram isn't done with his tests and trials. Who's with him as he approaches this altar? Lot. Isn't this ironic? And we do this probably all the time and don't even know it half the time. We come in a heart of repentance dragging more sin with us. Forgetting that there's still yet more to do. Or at least... Ignoring it. God had set forth an expectation for Abram that he would leave behind his family. And that was something God expected so that he could give to Abram the full measure of his blessing. But there is a measure of it, a a part of it that God has withheld to this moment. 
in how he's revealed it to Abram. And he's withholding it, waiting for Abram to take the next step of obedience, to comply with his instructions concerning the family. And as long as Lot is with Abram, Lot stands in the way, or more specifically, Abram's disobedience concerning Lot, stands in the way of God revealing the full extent of his blessing. Look at verses 5 through 7 now. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So we begin here with a confirmation that Lot was first with Abram, of course, but more than that, he is an adult. He's carrying his own household with him. We don't hear about a family here, but we could probably assume safely that he has brought his family with him. They'll come up here in a later chapter. But he probably found a wife in his father's home of Haran, brought her down with him into the land of Canaan, and has had that family with him now. He has flocks, he has herds, he has tents. This man has his own wealth, he has his own household. There's no reason he needs to be with Abram. That's probably been true since they left Haran. But the famine is still ongoing. Now, what's the worst thing you could do if you're trying to live off the land during a famine? Live right next to somebody else who has a lot of cattle, a lot of sheep. You're just competing for scarce resources. You you can't exist like that for very long. And that now becomes evident. In fact, I want you to take two facts that we know and put them together and see the wisdom of God in the plan that he has been working here in Abram's life. You begin to understand why God brought the famine in the first place. Remember we asked that question last week? Why would God bring Abram into the land only to bring a famine upon the land as Abram walks into it? Well, I think we now see that God puts the famine in the land to put pressure on Lot and Abram to separate. And why does he want to bring pressure to separate these two men? Because Lot's not supposed to be there in the first place. And what does Abram do? He takes Lot with him to Egypt. Well, that was a mistake. God makes sure they get back. And now we go back to plan A. Famine. Pressure. This is the God we serve. A God who chases us until we catch him. A God who is working plans well beyond our comprehension in the moment. Causing us in those moments to perhaps turn to God and say, why are you doing this to me? How unfair, how unkind. I'll guess I'll take care of this problem myself. And then later, when the wisdom of God is revealed to us, we look back on our life and we think, oh, he was doing it all along. He had a plan. And I was sitting here swimming upstream against him. If only I had just relaxed and let, let the water take me, I would have ended up right where I am anyway. So here's God now pressuring Lot and Abram to separate because that's what he said he expected out of Abram. So they decide they're going to separate here. By the way, as a little aside, we can probably assume that they thought this was their idea. Men sit around, make plans all day long. Proverbs tell us that though we make all those plans, God is the one directing our steps. Here you have men sitting around saying to themselves, you know, I think we should separate. Mm, good idea, Abram. Let's look around. Let's do this. Meanwhile, God's upstairs saying, it's about time. You wouldn't be starving to death if you had done this earlier. Your animals wouldn't be starving. Notice here in the description Moses gives us, the herdsmen now are fighting over their available land. 
Do you notice how one man's sin propagates? How one person's stubbornness and disobedience can turn into sin and strife and discord elsewhere in their household? And Moses here adds that this competition between Abram and Lot is made worse for the fact that in Canaan, you've got the Canaanites and the Perizzites still living in the land. Those two terms, Canaanite term means all who live in Canaan. Perizzites refer to one tribe of the Canaanites who were in this particular area of Canaan. And the point that Moses is making is that this is not a land that's simply Abram and Lot's to split up. They've got a lot of other people around them competing. So it makes living together all the harder because they're just compressed by the surrounding people into smaller spaces. They need to get away from one another. That's what Moses is emphasizing here. Isn't it interesting that Abram's decision to include his nephew Lot against God's instructions has now led to this entire problem, to the famine itself, to the conflict within his household, to the fact that he's going to have to separate, and yet, if you know the story of Genesis, this won't be the last we hear of Lot. There's going to be continuing strife, continuing burden on Abram because he brought this nephew with him into the land. So there are consequences here. But God is dealing with the first issue right now, separating these two men. Verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or, if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zuar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward. And thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled in the cities of the valley. And moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly. And sinners against the Lord. So Abram here takes the generous high road. He turns to his nephew, though he was the patriarch. He could have made all the decisions. He could have dictated where Lot goes. But no, he's magnanimous about it. He says, Lot, you pick, and I'll go the other way. Whichever way you want to go, I'll go the other way. Do you see your own wealth in the same way that Abram saw his? I mean, think about it. He owns all of this from God's point of view, from the way God has decreed. This is Abram's land. For a future day, but even in this moment, he is using it. This is something God has given to him. And look what he's saying to Lot. You pick whatever you want. You take it. Do we see our own wealth that way? And what I mean by this is, I think Abram saw it as temporary. As passing through his hands. Not something he needed to cling on to, because after all, he's not going to have it, but for a time, then he's going to let go of it anyway only to receive it later in eternal terms as God brings him back into the land in a resurrected form during the time of the kingdom. And then he will see the full measure of his promise revealed. So for the time being, really, what difference does it make if Lot takes part of it? It's been said that it's sheer madness to live in want in order to be wealthy when we die. And that's what it would have meant. If Abram had taken a look at the land around him and said, you know, I really don't think I can give any of this up, Lot. Gosh, there's so much good land here. Um, You know, Egypt's available. Why don't you go back down to Egypt? What he said instead was, take what you want. Jesus, by the way, taught that 
We have to see what we have in this world as something temporary if we are to further God's purposes and our own position in the kingdom. That's what he meant when he said, Seek first the righteousness of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. So that's Abram's attitude here. Clearly, Abram didn't believe he needed to cling to the land. He invited his nephew to take it. And I encourage us all to think about our wealth in a similar way. What freedom comes when we understand the eternal nature of our life in Christ? That this world is passing, that we don't have anything in this world we take with us, that the next world's inheritance is dictated by God, not by our own uh, efforts to hold on to something in this world. And God will provide, and therefore we don't need to keep up with the Joneses. Let them go where they will. Your worth, your identity is in Christ. Not in comparison to who lives next to you or what they drive. So Abram and Lot separate. Look in verse 10. This is a good test for careful Bible students. I want you to notice a pattern here. He lifts up his eyes. He sees the valley of the Jordan. He notices it's well watered, just like the Garden of God, like Egypt. Did Moses give you enough warning signs? First, did you notice the direction that Lot goes? East. How many times have we mentioned that? East, the direction associated with sin, the world, the enemy, in the way the Bible uses that. So first warning sign, Lot goes east. Secondly, notice the similarity between the language in verse 10 and a verse way back in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6 of chapter 3. In that chapter, in that verse, woman saw with her eyes that the tree was good. It was a delight to the eyes. There's a direct and intentional connection in the, Moses, in the language Moses uses between this moment as Lot lifts his eyes and catches sight of the valley, and it's a delight to his eyes, so to speak. And then back in chapter 3, the moment sin took hold in the woman's heart, she lifts her eyes and she sees something that delights her. And as we learned back in chapter 3, the eye... Physically speaking, the eye is often the chief offender in our flesh in drawing us away from an obedient walk with God. Whether it's window shopping, whether it's lust, whether it's many other ways in which we turn and look and desire, the eye is often where it starts. And then third, the next warning sign, Lot likes the valley because Moses says it reminds him of Egypt. (laughs) Oh, that's not a good sign. Egypt. Remember the way Egypt is used in Scripture? It's a picture of the unbelieving, sinful world in contrast to God's people in the promised land. He likes what the world's offering. He likes what it reminds him of in Egypt. This is something he's attracted to. Finally, Moses adds this passing parenthetical reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the story of those evil cities has yet to be told in the pages of Genesis for our sake here, of course, but those cities were infamous in Moses' day, They are just as much infamous today, of course. Peter, in his letter, says that Sodom and Gomorrah were held up as examples to the world of what happens when God brings judgment for sin. Here we are, centuries and centuries and millennia later, with a world that largely doesn't even believe the Bible is true. And yet, that principle, that lesson, still remains in the culture, even among those who don't know the Bible or read it. They remember the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Whether they believe it actually happened or not is not even the point. When God sets to make something an example for the world, it becomes that. It stays that way. And here it is still again today. So Moses makes this little passing reference to the fact that the place that attracted Lot, the place where he ends up pitching his tent, is right outside the most sinful city in the land. 
So we have going east, going to Egypt, lifting up and looking and lusting with his eyes, ending up next to Sodom. Lot here is clearly the polar opposite of Abram. And he's being used as such in the story. While Abram returns to the land, rededicates himself to God, bows at an altar, asks for forgiveness, Lot, on the other hand, lifts his eyes and runs headlong into sin. Is it any wonder why God called Abram to separate himself from his family? This is a hard lesson. It's been hard personally for me because I have many in the family I have that do not know the Lord. But it's a hard lesson to remember that unless God has purpose to call someone into faith and works through the Spirit to do so, then there is no assurance from our point of view that that will ever happen. We have no no reason to presume, and we may be hitching our wagons to the life of someone who's running headlong into sin and may go that way forever. I'm not advocating that we should be less interested in reaching them for Christ, any less passionate about it. We're talking about something different here. We're not talking about witnessing. We're talking about uniting with someone, whether in marriage or in business, or in this case, living as a family, as a household together. Abram had made the mistake of presuming that Lot was included in God's plan. And that's a dangerous presumption. You are presuming God's going to do something that he may not do. And this is hard stuff, right? Here you see the effect of what can happen when a man disobeys God with respect to a relationship, lets that relationship continue on, and it not only brings down the household, it interferes with God's purposes. Is there any wonder why God has brought famine to pressure these men apart? And only now, only at this moment, when you watch what the heart of Lot leads him to do, only now can we step back and evaluate what God's been doing all along and say to ourselves, look how wise God was to tell Abram, don't bring your nephew, don't bring your family. Only now can we see how wise it was that he would produce a famine when before we might have stood back and said, this is a terrible thing for you to do. When you face trial, when you wonder how God could be in something and yet love us through it, Remember this story. Remember how he had to bring famine against Abram and all who were with him in order to affect this outcome. That's how much our Father cares for our holiness, for our obedience. He is far, far more interested in us living a holy and obedient life than he is making sure we're comfortable or that we have everything we want or that our life goes just as planned. Those things are passing and temporary. Our holiness, our sanctification is eternal. So Lot moves eastward. He settles in his tent outside the city of Sodom. Now Abram finally is separated from his family. And for the first time since God called him, Abram now stands fully in compliance, fully in obedience to what God directed him at the beginning of chapter 12. So now that he stands fully obedient, what do you think God's prepared to do in response? Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now... Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the number of the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. 
And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, if you're counting, this is the third time the Lord has spoken to Abram concerning these promises. But the timing here is critically important to understanding what he's doing. Moses records that God's appearing here happened after Lot separated. God draws a clear connection to the events of the parting with the words he speaks. In fact, Lot, as you remember, lifted his eyes and saw a sinful Sodom and found it pleasing. But now Abram's obedient step here in separating from Lot pleases God and causes God to instruct Abram to raise his eyes up as well. And not just eastward, but in all four directions. This is all yours and will be, as far as you can see, both to you and to your descendants. I want you to consider the contrast that was just created between these two moments. Lot, the sinful man unwilling to follow God, looks up, finds something in his own sight that pleases him, and then follows it into sin. But Abram, on the other hand, allows God to direct his eyes And it led to obedience and a far greater inheritance. While Lot looks up and picks a piece, God tells Abram where to look and says, look at it all. This is a consistent testimony of Scripture. We have always had this choice and always will in following God. We can either follow his direction or we can follow our own desires. And our own desires are going to lead to some measure of satisfaction. You know, I'm not going to tell you that lust isn't fun at times. I'm not going to tell you that Following your sin can't have its enjoyments for a period of time. If it had no enjoyment, no one would do it. But it will bring consequences. It is displeasing to the Lord. It does have eternal outcomes. That's one choice. Or we can do what Abram does here. We can wait, allow God to direct us in our vision, point us to what he says will be ours, follow him according to his will, and we will ultimately find better things and a greater eternal inheritance. But in the short term, it may not seem like that. But I can tell you, Lot had a lot more fun in the next few months than Abram did. Abram was still walking around a parched desert land. Lot goes down into the valley where all the fun people are. But it's such a temporary, meaningless kind of enjoyment. I mentioned that each time God appears to Abram, he reveals a little bit more concerning his promises. Look what's revealed in this last section. In this revelation, God explains that, number one, all the land would be Abram's and his descendants. In verse 15, by the way, my English translation says that they would own the land forever. Does yours say that? That's actually not a good translation. The Hebrew word is ad olam. And what that literally means most specifically in Hebrew is for an age. It's been translated forever because it can also mean that. But we know from later scripture that they will not actually have this land literally forever. They have it during the Messianic kingdom. They have it for the thousand year reign of Christ on earth for that age. And then Paul tells us that once that age has completed, all authority from the Son is returned to the Father. The new heavens and new earth descend, Jerusalem rather. That becomes a new age in which there is a new dispensation, a new economy on earth. There is not the same situation. You can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. But nevertheless, God elaborates that Abram's descendants will be too numerous to count. Now, Abram has heard about a descendant or descendants already, but now he's starting to hear that this is going to be a large group of people an uncountable large group of people. And that leads Abram to start getting anxious about when are these kids coming? When do I finally get this promise? And he'll mention that in a future chapter. And then finally, God instructs Abram to walk the entire land he has received. This is God showing his 
graciousness, showing his generosity. Walk it, Abram. You don't even have a clue how much I just gave you. You don't even have a, a beginning of appreciation. Walk to the west, to the sea. Walk to the east, to the Jordan. Walk to the north, to Damascus. Walk to the south again until you reach the Negev. Look at what I have just given you because you separated from Lot. Not that God wasn't always going to return that to Abram. That was a promise he made long before Abram was obedient. But he wants to reveal it to him. We have promises that aren't dependent on our obedience. God has made promises through Christ that come to us by faith alone. But if you're wondering why your life doesn't feel like it should, it's not looking the way it should, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like what Christians are supposed to have, maybe the problem isn't God's faithfulness. Maybe the problem is our obedience. That his willingness to reveal it is conditional on us being good sons and daughters because he's a perfect father and he doesn't reward disobedience. Let's go to prayer. And as I do, we'll prepare for a time of of communion. Asking the Lord to talk to us each individually about our state of obedience in our walk. Go with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it goes without saying that each of us, Father, have a life that is disobedient at times. For as long as we inhabit this sinful body, we know we will experience the struggle that comes from a spirit that knows you in a flesh that is your enemy. One day, Father, you take this flesh away as you promised, and we will live in a glorified body, one that obeys you entirely. But for reasons of your own, for good purposes you have ordained, we have been left in this body for a time. We serve you in it. We worship you in it. We come to know you through your word while living in it, and we struggle against it. And you tell us in your word, Father, that this endurance, this struggle, is to our benefit, that it would grow us in faith. And so I ask, Father, that as Abram showed us today, small steps of faith, of of persistence, not perfection, cause you to bring us greater favor. But we don't obey you for the reward of favor, Father. We obey you because of the call to be holy. Knowing, Father, that you delight to give your children good gifts, but you also discipline those whom you call sons. Let us take the discipline you send to us and put it to good work in our lives, giving us pause when we choose to sin, giving us a desire to return to you in humility, and giving us a picture, Father, in your Son of what holiness looks like. Thank you for our time in the Word. May we continue in this study according to your will. May it continue to grow us and mold us from Abram to Abraham. And may we witness to who we are outside these walls. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.